welcome to the Seeds Church Podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe to us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and on our Apple and Spotify podcasts. We hope you enjoy this inspiring message from our Sunday service. Last week we had Matt, um, sorry, Matt, Mark Ilford speak. Mark's not here, is he? Oh, he is. I'm going to say some things about Mark. <clears throat> Mark actually apologised last week for giving the camera person such a workout. What he probably didn't realise is that Sarah and I were sitting in the front row. We felt sure this lectern was going to go. He got it wobbling seriously. Uh, and of course, Mark, we love your passion. And what was really significant last week, of course, was his conversation to us about Jesus being the chief cornerstone and, and of us being living stones offering living sac- spiritual sacrifices to God. And if you missed that, you can see it on, on uh, Seed's YouTube. As part of that sermon, he spoke about an incident in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus asked his disciples, firstly, what are people saying about me? And then secondly, what are, what are you saying about it? Who do you think I am? And he referred to that passage. What he didn't know was I was planning to preach on that passage this week. Thank you, Mark. That was a lovely segue. Uh, what Mark said was that the confession of Peter that Jesus was the Messiah was the belief, was the foundation for Jesus being the cornerstone. Without being Jesus being the Messiah, there, there, there's no hope. It's as simple as that. It, it is the basis. So Mark was really right in that. He also, Mark also said that we're living stones, and what he was saying was we're not static, we're not fixed. There's a call on our lives to grow and keep growing as disciples of Christ. We never arrive So we need to always come to church, to come to Bible study, to come to prayer every day, asking God to grow us. And the reason I was really interested in in Caesarea Philippi is what we do here is we see the disciples growing. It's a teaching moment. And there's lots of teaching moments because obviously Jesus starts with people that don't, don't know him at all and grows them as they follow him. It was actually a really blunt statement on Facebook that made me focus on this Caesarea Philippi passage. Now, I don't usually go to Facebook as a, as a primary source. You'll be glad to know. But there was this really blunt statement on there that when I read it, I immediately thought of Caesarea Philippi. And this is the blunt statement. If everything that we hate is the same as Jesus hates then we've created Jesus in our own image. Now, I don't get hung up on the word hate. I don't think Jesus hates anyone, but I think you can hear what it's saying. Let me re-express it in the positive. If everything that we like is the same as Jesus likes, then we've created Jesus in our own image. Now, that is an aspirational statement, but it's not true each and every day. Hopefully, we're growing more and more to be like Jesus, But the fact is, we're not the same. So if we'd like to be rich and famous and have everything we want when we want it, do we immediately assume that Jesus wants that too? Would we bother to ask the question about that? The underlying question is, really, who is Jesus? Who do we see Jesus to be? Because that determines everything else about our lives. The point I'm making is that we are not Jesus So in this world, there will always be a difference between what we do and what Jesus does and between what Jesus thinks and what we think. There will always be a difference between those things. 
And the gospel is always a pointed challenge at us to call us to repentance and newness of life, to call us to be more like Jesus. There is always a call to change our lives and our attitudes. Having said that, let's hear the passage. Thank you, Matt. Reading comes from Matthew 16, verse 13 to 26. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my, by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took, us, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? That's a pretty strong passage, isn't it? I mean, Peter correctly identifies Jesus as the Messiah. And in the Matthew version, not, not so in some of the others, but in the Matthew version, Jesus says that piece of information has come directly from God. It's a revelation. That the only way he could know that is because God told him. But then interestingly and immediately following this verse, we read, Then he... Jesus sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. When those two things sit together with some tension, don't they? You've, you've correctly identified me, but yeah, heck, don't tell anyone. Now, there's all sorts of reasons for that, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, one could simply be that now is not the time for everybody to know that Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe it's just a timing thing. But when you look at the whole passage, I think there's something else we can see. The following verses suggest that Jesus doesn't want people to tell other people he's the Messiah because he's got the wrong understanding of what a Messiah is. So he's going to give wrong information and that's going to be unhelpful. Jesus goes on to say very clearly what sort of Messiah he will be. So it's important we, we hear these verses really clearly. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. 
and on the third day be raised to life. Now, Matthew, Mark and Luke record words like that three times at least, and there's other hints at it as well, but at least three times in those Gospels we find those words. And I I don't know how many other times Jesus might have told the disciples that, and there probably was a whole lot of other times, but for three times it got written down, so we know it's really important. Yet Peter is appalled by what Jesus says. Because in his mind, that's not what happens to Messiah's. Peter has a really different understanding. So Peter rebukes Jesus. Yeah, when, when you think about that, I don't, I don't know about you, but gee, I hope I don't do too much rebuking of Jesus. But then when I think about this, I, I begin to think, gee, I wonder if I do. I wonder if there's things I do or don't do or say or don't say that actually are a bit like rebuking Jesus. But anyway, he does, and the verbs that are used are all about power and authority. Peter is assuming to know better than Jesus. This is a saying. And I wonder how often we think that too. But Peter's view, I imagine, is that a Messiah is all-powerful and will use that power, that military might, to overcome opposition. To quote Paul, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So I think the cross is the wrong sign for Peter and I think it's a stumbling block for him as well. And the other disciples have a similar understanding. Let's look at James and John. So a couple of the other of the the inner core of the disciples. James and John want to call down fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritans. They're offended by Samaritans. They say to Jesus, let's destroy. Let's destroy them. Let's call down fire and get rid of them. Jesus says, no. No. James and John want Jesus to do what they want him to do. And they say that to him. They want the best places on the right and the left. And the other ten disciples, when they hear about that, are furious because I imagine they had the place on the right and the left in mind as well. Is Peter's rebuke about what he wants, about selfishness or maybe it's just misunderstanding you know is our version of discipleship about going things going well about blessing about prosperity how many of our prayers are actually may my will be done only you will know the answer to that are our prayers kind of holding God accountable for the things we want you know there is a clear disconnect here between Jesus and who he is, and how the disciples want him to be. In the Mark version of this passage, Jesus actually turns to look at the other 11. So he's having a conversation with Peter. He turns to look at the other 11 and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. I reckon what he's doing is he's acknowledging that all 11 of them are thinking the same as Peter is. So he's speaking to all of them when he makes this strong statement. They all want a Messiah, who will crush, crush the Roman army. And Jesus describes that focus, as you would have said, seen as human concerns. So in Mark 8 we read, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 
So the Messiah, Jesus, is focused on that one thing, on the concerns of God. And that's the only way that salvation can happen. In the end, I'm sure, by focusing on God's concerns, the human issues dealt with as well. But discipleship is not about our agenda, but about God's agenda. So let me take you to a couple of passages that show Jesus' agenda. Early in, in a couple of Gospels, Jesus is led into the wilderness. You probably remember that passage. He's, it's, it's interesting. At the moment he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he's taken to a place where he's tested and, and tested by, by the evil one. And he makes just a few comments. He resists the devil saying that he lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God, that he will not test God and that we are to serve and worship God only. Clear principles. In both Matthew and Mark, the passage we are focusing on is about the middle of the Gospels. And if you read the Gospels, you can see that there's a kind of a pivot point and for all of them, it's about the middle. So before the pivot point, you'll find that Jesus is really actively involved in ministry. So whether people are healed, whether they're set free, uh, whether he's taking control of nature. And then we reach this point, And from then on, it seems the focus shifts to the suffering of the Christ. And all the way through to the cross, that is the focus. In Luke... Uh, in, in that kind of that middle point at the end of chapter 9 it says as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem now you, you know what resolution is when you deter, you know you're setting your mind on something you're going for it what, what we lose in the English is the word for resolutely comes from the word for flint now some, some of you will know flint and may have been in flint quarries but I mean, that's a really hard stone that can be cut into a sharp, in a sharp way. It can be used for starting fires. It can be used for arrowheads. It can be used for axes. Really hard. What awaits Jesus is so bad that he has to set his whole being on going there. And he does it because God asks him to. So from this point on, the suffering of Christ is the lens through which we see everything that happens. And Jesus will repeatedly talk of his sufferings to those who follow him and they'll make either of two choices. Either they'll slowly come to grips with this different sort of Messiah or they'll stop following him. Jesus is totally focused on the concerns of God. He speaks of God's love and forgiveness and it can only come through the cross. For God, there is no other way. Even at the very end in the Garden of Gethsemane as the crucifixion is near, Jesus says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but your will be done. That's Mark 14, 36, if you want to follow up with that afterwards. It's still about God's concerns. Even though the cost for him is enormous. The way of salvation is the way of the cross. It's doing the Father's will. So being a disciple is much more than being able to use the name of the Messiah. It's much more than just being able to use the right title. Being a disciple means being like the Messiah. 
To call someone Messiah means that we give up the right to define what the Messiah will be like and we accept the Messiah's authority. The right place for a disciple is always behind the Messiah. As Jesus and all those first disciples, come, follow me. As Jesus obeyed the Father, we are called to obey the Son. And we read in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So in today's passage, he goes on and says this, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be if someone, for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now I want to say really strongly that denying self does not mean demeaning ourselves or to think of ourselves as unworthy. That's not what it's saying at all. Rather, it's about choosing to do some things and not do other things. It's choosing to define our lives by Jesus Christ. And it turns out that even that and even the way of the cross is actually the way we find life as well. That's how abundant life comes. Let me finish um, with a few comments about the Lord's Prayer because I think it illustrates this. And I want, want to say a couple of other things first. The first is this, we've been getting some instruction from a person in, in uh, Victoria about discipleship. And his knowledge of the Bible is extraordinary and he looks for the patterns of Jesus' life and he finds that Jesus constantly teaches his disciples to do things. So his understanding is when we get to this point and they say to him, teach us how to pray, he suspects what they're actually saying is, you know, we've, we've got prayer 101. We, we want to move up a bit. We, we want to get to the really nice, powerful prayers. Prayer 202 or 303 or whatever it is. And he suspects that what Jesus does is he teaches the, exactly the same thing as he's been teaching them ever since he met them. This is how you pray, our Father in heaven. So he doesn't give them a fancy, sophisticated one. He goes back to the same thing and says, this is it. And the, the other thing, I was just I was talking to someone between services and that, they'd had this kind of revelation during the week and they realised that every time we pray this prayer, we're actually praying it with Jesus. So it's his prayer. So when we say our Father, it's his Father too. And he's there praying it with us. So having said that, Let's look at the emphasis in the Lord's Prayer. We ask for God's will to be done, not ours. We ask God for daily bread instead of being in control and providing it for ourselves. It's God's name that's hallowed, made holy, not ours. It's God's kingdom that matters, not our own. And if in the end there's a time of trial, like Jesus had, we're going to need rescuing. We don't manage it. We ask for help. And our main role is not telling Jesus how to run our life or his. We're sent out with the task of forgiving those who have hurt us. That's what we find in the prayer. So I'm going to suggest we finish this sermon with, by saying the Lord's Prayer. And I know you can say it in a rote sort of way, and so I'm going to suggest we do it a bit differently, and I'm going to suggest we say it slowly so that after each line, we're going to pause and, and Mashi can actually control this 
And, 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 and David, I reckon this time, let's do it even more slowly so if you can allow a slightly bigger gap. So we're not rushing through it. We're going to say the first line and think about it a bit. There'll be a pause and then we'll say the second one. So why don't we stand and say this prayer together and we'll, we'll follow the words that are on the screen. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to the Seeds Church podcast. We hope you join in with us next week. For more information, you can visit our website at seedschurch.org.